It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. I'm going to a city that's set on a hill. Its ruler and maker is the Lord God above. Oh, I'm going to a city and it's set on a hill. And someday I'll be in heaven and there'll be no sorrow there. Oh, I'm going to... Hello, everybody. God bless you today. This is Susan Puzio. And I want to welcome you to the Prophetic News radio broadcast on Blog Talk Radio. And we're also heard on the Rapture Ready Radio Network, which is the network of our sister Jackie Alnor. We also have our website, propheticnews.com, our YouTube channel that's under my name, Susan Puzio, our book called Seed Faith, Can a Man Bribe God? My Journey Through the Word of Faith Movement. And we also talk about many of the Word of Faith teachers in this book. It's a 300-page book, large print, so it's pretty easy to read. And also, if you wanted to email me, you can email me at susan at propheticnews.com. That's susan at propheticnews.com. And I do read all my emails, and I answer them also. So if you have anything that you want to say, I'd love to hear from you. Anyway, we had some big news today. The big news that just came out today is that Jim Baker has had a mild stroke. Now, we know he's been under a lot of stress and strain over the past because he he was selling silver, liquid silver, and somebody made the comment. I don't think he I I don't think he ever made the comment actually that it cured coronavirus, but I think the lady that was selling it mentioned something. I I haven't really uh, listened to the clip in totality, so I can't really tell you exactly what was said, but I don't think he said that it actually cured coronavirus, but uh, people do use silver solution to kill different germs. So I, I've i never used it myself in any uh, real way, so I can't really say yay or nay about using silver some I've known some people that swear by it but anyway I'm not making any claims about it because I don't really know anyway because of that he's he's being sued now he's 80 years old so he's being sued by this the attorney general of New York Order, ordered Baker to quit misleading New Yorkers by falsely advertising their product, the Silver Solution. Well, 
Anyway, so then to punish him on top of that, his credit card company said that he could no longer take credit cards to for his offerings and for his products that he sells. So he's basically kind of on a stranglehold there. And, of course, he's building and building and building and building, which he doesn't really need to do. That's what happened to Jim Baker. One of the things that happened to him in the beginning when he first started when he was when he was at the PTL there in North Carolina, he he was building and building. And I remember one time watching him, and he was saying that he was going to build a crystal a crystal cathedral. That was the next thing he was going to build. And then he would play this music in the background to dream the impossible dream. And and it was all about Jim. And so uh, we know what happened there. God shut the place down, and Jim went to prison. So you would think that he would learn a lesson after being, especially after being in a federal prison for five years. But anyway, he's got this ministry now in Branson, and he's doing he's basically doing the same thing there he's building this building the new PTL and the latest thing he wanted to do was to start a 24-hour television network with prophets mainly false prophets of course mainly false prophets every wacky one there is out there and then he was building some kind of a prof uh, a pos- prophets hall of fame or something, just ridiculous. You don't need all that. You don't need to do that. If you if you want to be on television, be on television, preach preach the gospel. And if you want to ask for donations, so ask for a donation. But just preach the gospel. Don't spend 40 minutes selling products, which... You say you're preaching the gospel, but you spend very little time really preaching the gospel. So I guess from all the stress of not being able to pay the bills, which the bills must be massive because he's on so many networks and uh, everything else that's going on, I guess it kind of brings back flashbacks, too, of what he went through when he was when he went to prison. So... I would say it would be a good time for Jim to examine himself and see if he can straighten out the mess he's in because he's in a mess and only God can help and God might have to strip him of everything again to get his attention. But anyway, it's it's a situation say and he does need prayer that's for sure because he can't see himself he's like a blind man and he can't see what he's been doing and he's doing things that are wrong especially the one time when he brought Paula White on his program and he said that she was the greatest female preacher he ever heard well 
please. You know that there has to be something wrong with your brain when you make it like that. When you've been in public life, public ministry for 50 years, I think, or maybe even more than that, he's been in ministry. And you've heard so many different preachers. And you're going to say that about Paula White, the, the scam artist? So you need help when you start talking crazy like that. But anyway, that, that story came out just today. And uh, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. He's, they say he said he'll be taking time off from the program. I he will. I guess he will, because nobody wants to have a stroke, a little one or a big one or any kind. So, we're going to... Now, this was interesting, because I didn't know this story about Rex Humbard. Now, some of you might not know who Humbard is, but he was a... I guess he got his start. He built this. He and he built. He built actually the first. I would say mega. <laughs> the first real mega church. In 1958. It was called the Cathedral of Tomorrow, and it was built in Akron, Ohio. And it could see. 5,400 people. Now, that was massive at that time, especially for a Pentecostal-type church. It, it had, it's a dome building with a large illuminated cross that hangs from the ceiling. When you go inside, there's this big cross hanging from the ceiling. The cross weighs 32 tons. <gasps> oh, my word. And it, it is illuminated with 4,700 lights that can change colors. Wow. Now, this is 1958. So, Rex Humbard, at one time, was on over 600 television stations in the United States and Canada. And even, I think, even more than that later. But he was a a figure that you would see for many years on uh, what they called Christian television. Some of it was Christian, not all of it. Uh, when they when they told people how to accept Jesus, that was Christian. But some of the antics that the people played on these networks, including Rex Humbard, he was always begging. In the end of his ministry for for the people that that saw him, he was always begging and crying. Oh, he was going under. But Rex was loaded. Let me tell you, he left behind a foundation. And his family runs the foundation. They still have a website. They still collect money. But who knows how much money he left behind. But he uh, he also, in 1971, he built a tower there near his church. He it was a, It was supposed to be a 750 feet high tower. And... It was going to have a TV station, and it was supposed to have a restaurant that tur- that turned. <laughs> That's what every ministry needs, right? Yeah, every ministry. I did. Some of these guys, they, they're into building. 
building, 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 mainly building monuments to themselves. Of course, later on, he lost, he, he sold the church because there was, their, their attendance went down. I think it was in the 1980s when he sold the church to Ernest Angley, who we'll talk, probably talk about next week, not next week, but maybe the week after that, we'll talk about him. But anyway, he took over this big church and Rex moved to Florida. And he died, I think, when he was 88 or 89. But, yeah, in 1994, the cathedral was sold to Ernest Angley. And it was renamed Grace Cathedral, the name of Angley's previous house of worship. Now, Angley, he's a strange person. But anyway, um Some of the some of the things that <laughs> Rex Humbard did, he, he but uh, he said they changed the law sometime later. Was he had businesses, and one of the businesses he has had was a girdle factory. <laughs> so, <laughs> let me tell you, that was a long time ago. I don't even know if they even sell girdles anymore. But I guess in the 1950s, that was a big deal, right? But he owned uh, other real estate, other factories. And uh, he also started this this direct marketing company, or no, I don't know. If, maybe it wasn't him that started it, but somebody that worked for him anyway. They started this direct marketing company when they figured out that they could really make big money by calling people and getting them to donate by begging and crying. And then, of course, they invented. I don't think it was Rex Humbard, but. It was this other guy, Gene Ewing, is his name. He's kind of behind the scenes. Nobody really sees him. But he he was the brains behind the appeal letters that people get. Now, we, probably most of us have had these appeal letters. And uh, they're written by these direct marketing companies because they these people know what they're doing. They bring in the bucks. So part of Humbard's businesses besides the girdle factory was an office tower, a college on Mackinac Island, an advertising agency, an apartment building, and other assets. He also had a senior citizen complex that I think that was financed by the government or he got a government loan or whatever to open this senior citizen place, but there's still some videos and uh, and looked, I was hoping that I could find one of his begging videos, I wish I had some of those videos and some of those sound clips to play for you because it was so pitiful of course usually what happens to these people is they, they rise to a certain pinnacle and then there's only one way to go, and, the, and it's down. So for him, it was down. And 
he begged and begged, oh, every time you saw him, and then he would go on other preachers' TV programs, and it was so humiliating. The thing is, imagine having a parent like that, and he had several children. I don't know if he had four or five. He had a daughter named Liz, and then a few sons. I, I think I saw three sons. I'm not sure exactly how many children he had, but could you imagine how embarrassing it is for a child when their parent is begging people for money all the time? And then, of course, you're putting you're putting on this public persona of success and that your father is a man of God. And maybe, some, maybe these kids look at it and they say, well, my father, he doesn't practice what he preaches. He's always begging for money. And then he's, he cons people out of money. He takes loans from Jimmy Hoffa from the Teamsters pension plan. So I guess it must be pretty hard for some of these children to grow up in these families. Although most of them later on, very few of them, I I see very few of them say, I'm not taking the money. I'm going to go into a different business besides this ministry business. But it seems like the Humbard family, for the most part, uh, after the parents died, made a living from this trust, from this um, foundation that they have. It's called the Rex Humbard Foundation. I think that's what it's called. So, But uh, for me, I'm glad I grew up in a family where my my parents earned an honest living. They were never out there begging people, especially begging people in the name of Jesus. I mean, how humiliating is that? So, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want. I wouldn't have wanted to be raised like that. No way. It's better to be raised with a family that they they earn an honest living, and. They love God, and you don't have to grow up. A lot of these kids grow up, and they have tremendous problems with their life because they can't cope knowing parents got their wealth. And they get they get very, very wealthy, very, very wealthy. But... Like I said, you can't find out how much money they have in this station. Some stations tell you how much they have, but not this one. So he knew what he was doing. He left behind. <laughs> he left behind all his money, and uh, probably for his children and his children's. <laughs> They're all going to get a piece of the action. But I I have these uh, audios from the story that was, there there was a few stories that were printed. A friend of mine was telling me about this the other day, and I thought that it was so interesting, especially the fact that Rex Humbard took money from Jimmy Hoffa. And for some people that don't remember, Jimmy Hoffa was a, 
the head of the Teamsters Union, and he he disappeared. They never found him, and they they really don't know what happened to him. We can only assume what happened to him because he was never found. And when you're dealing with these uh, mafia types, you better watch what you do because especially if you're borrowing money from them or it's a power trip or whatever, you'll disappear and you'll never be found again. Here's somebody as famous as Jimmy Hoffa was at one time, and he disappeared. (laughs) And uh, anyway, imagine your your own family taking money from... uh, gangsters to fund their ministry. Well, he took out loans. They gave him loans. I wonder how much interest they were charging him because you hear about these loan sharks, right, where they'll they'll lend you money, but then you have to pay them like 50% interest or whatever. But the story goes that Rex Humbard, was, uh, he paid the loans back. He paid the loans back. He did pay the loans back, right? <laughs> and um, I think another he uh, was the minister at the Elvis Presley funeral. Now, some people want, they like to tell you that Elvis was a Christian. I, I doubt seriously that Elvis was a Christian. When he died, he was reading a book about uh, Eastern uh, some kind of Eastern religion uh, sex book when he died. So I don't think that doesn't sound Christian to me. But anyway, Sambar claims that he was Elvis and then he was uh, to preach his funeral. Who knows if he ever had time, if he, when he died, if he ever had time to uh, repent, who knows, because I know he heard the gospel, but his lifestyle and the way he behaved, it had nothing to do with uh, Jesus, nothing to do with Jesus. Anyway, let's play, I'm going to play the first of these audios I have about the story of Rex Humbard. own day of divine scrutiny, how would they secure their place in heaven? Now, at the age of 88, it was Humbard's turn to find out. It was a balmy Friday in September. Humbard lay in his Florida nursing home bed and announced, before slipping into death, that it was time. He was ready, says Alma Robinson, a close friend. It was his time to go home. A week later, Humbard's body was returned to Akron, where he invented televangelism 54 years earlier. More than 600 people attended his funeral, held under a billowing white tent in Stan Highwet Hall's meadow. Between sermons from televangelist Goliaths like Benny Hinn and Inspiration Network chairman David Cerullo, the air swelled with Humbard's favorite gospel hymns, from Swing Down Chariot to his ministry's theme song, I Am Loved. There wasn't a dry eye in the place, Robinson says. As Rex's brother-in-law, the Reverend Wayne Jones, spoke, amends were hollered and arms were stretched to the air, palming the invisible. Rex wasn't a complicated man, Jones said. He simply loved people and he wanted everybody to have that more abundant life that God wants them to have. Rex was a soul winner. The scripture says, he that winneth souls is wise. Rex Humbard was one of the wisest men I've known. 
because his focus was on winning souls. The media echoed that same touching sentiment. The Dayton Daily News noted that he had come closer than any other human being in history to preaching the gospel in all the world. The Washington Post and the New York Times cited a 1999 U.S. News and World Report article that deemed Humbard one of the greatest architects of 20th century America. Everyone recalled that he was Elvis' favorite preacher and officiated at the King's funeral in 1977. An Akron Beacon Journal editorial made sure to set Humbard apart from more controversial televangelists by extolling the fact that he steered clear of political involvement. Perhaps it was out of respect for the dead. Perhaps the papers feared a backlash from evangelical readers. Everyone seemed quick to lionize a great fallen religious leader, but it was revisionist history at its best. Though no one can argue the influence Humbard had on the world, his life can be reduced to little more than that of a business-savvy preacher, a man who elevated old-school religious fraud to shamelessly profitable heights, pioneering televangelism as a way to separate his flock from its money. Here's the other story of Reverend Rex Humbard. Long before Ernest Angley's Bad Dupay and Tammy Faye Backer's puppet shows, evangelism was alive and well. For Humbard, it was a family business. The son of a traveling evangelist, Humbard spent much of his life on the road. He pitched revival tents on dusty lots across the Bible Belt, acting as his father's business manager, co-host, and second in ecclesiastical command, living off the generosity of those touched by their fiery performances. By his own admission, he always thought big, especially when it came to Jesus. Once, while working in South Bend, Indiana, Humbard watched as Barnum and Bailey rolled into town. Inspired by the spectacle, Humbard gave his family's transient chapel a makeover, buying a $21,000 circus tent and dubbing their show The Gospel Big Top. Now God finally had a tent as big as the Ringling Brothers, he wrote in his 1975 autobiography, To Tell the World. And even bigger, really, because this Gospel Big Top would give people, instead of temporary entertainment, the key to eternal salvation. Humbard also adopted the theatrical faith healing of preachers like Oral Roberts, who filled donation baskets by claiming to rid people of ailments that modern medicine couldn't cure. It was all carnival scams, says James Randi, author of The Faith Healers and a leading expert on the tricks of the trade. My former manager worked for Roberts when he was 14 years old, touring around the country as one of his plants. He was paid to walk up to the altar in a pair of crutches and then run down the aisle all straightened out. It was an absolute racket. Humbard's Pentecostal performances were just as dramatic. As he zigzagged across the country, he steadily packed his canvas walls with promises of healing and salvation in Jesus' love. But nothing compared to the crowds in Akron. On a sweltering summer day in 1952, the Humbard family pitched their tent on the airport grounds. Before the Sunday sun rose, all 6,000 seats were filled and more people were waiting outside. They stood 25 circles deep around the tent, a total of 18,000 waiting patiently for God's greatest show on earth. The 36-year-old Humbard had seen nothing like it. At 7.30 a.m., the Humbard family took the stage. Rex's wife, Mon Amy, sang tambourine-filled gospel, while he and his father took turns preaching soul-saving and demon-hating. They were joined by Catherine Coleman, a notorious faith healer who claimed to heal everything from paralysis to cancer, but was often dismissed as little more than a magician on the take. For five hours, she preached before the Akron crowd, bringing the tent to a frenzied pitch with promises of divine rejuvenation. But not everyone appreciated the Humbard's visit. Nearby residents complained about the noise, congestion. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty amazing, really, when you think about it. Back in the in the 1950s, to draw a crowd of over 20,000 people in a tent, really quite amazing. 
Now, this is a story. This is not a Christian uh, reporter. It's a, it's a story in a secular newspaper, although I agree with most of the thing. I, I don't agree with the, uh, the tone about the salvation, but of course, it, we, many Christians, and maybe Rex Humbard, I don't know, were sincere as far as when they were asking people to be born again and to accept Jesus Christ. Most, most, even uh, most of these people that you see on television, they have the uh, altar call where they ask people to repent and give their life to Jesus. So I'm not, I don't agree with the man's tone about that. Of course, whether or not a lot of these people even know the Lord, that remains to be seen in most cases because anybody can can get up in front of a crowd and and uh, give an altar call, but whether they even believe it themselves, some of them don't. But it's a good way to earn a living. And he was a good, but he was a good speaker. He was a kind of a folksy guy, and he he had a, a strange name. Really, his his real name was Alpha. That was his first name, Alpha Rex Emmanuel Humbard. So that's a very very different name. But he had a very folksy way, and uh, he was smart. As far as he, uh, his business acumen, yeah, he knew how to start businesses, and he knew how to attract a crowd. Maybe he started out with a pure heart. I don't know. I didn't know Rex Humbard, and I remember seeing him back in the 1980s when he was on television. Because I got saved in 1981, so after that I would see him, and then of course later on he w- he was just uh, begging all the time, and it was so sad. So he, whatever credibility he had, I think he lost it in, in the eyes of so many people because of the way he behaved later in his life. So you spend your whole life building a ministry and then it falls apart in the end and then uh, you resort to uh, begging and then at that time I think a lot of people just wanted him to to go away to retire but here's the second followers part. in a prayer for Billington's soul Humbard kept his tent so packed that he extended their original 17 day stay to 5 weeks each time Humbard took the stage Alma Robinson was in the audience she was much like the rest of Humbard's flock. Her parents were homesick Southerners who'd moved to Akron to work the city's rubber boom. My father fell in love with Rex instantly, Robinson says. There was no one like him. He gave us that old-time, soul-saving gospel preaching that we needed and still need. As the Humbards prepared to leave, Robinson's parents begged Rex to stay in Akron and start his own church. Although I was not yet ready to give up traveling with our family's gospel big top, God was building up a powerful attraction between Akron and me because he had plans for me there, he later wrote. So Humbard placed the tent in storage and rented the Copley Theater. He and Maud Amy started doing daily radio broadcasts, which expanded to stations in Pittsburgh and Wheeling. In less than a year, he had outgrown the Copley and moved to the 1,000-seat Ohio Theater, which was renamed Calvary Temple and marked by a 42-foot neon cross. Then, in the winter of 1953, Humbard had an epiphany. 
he watched a crowd of Christmas shoppers gather around O'Neill's department store window downtown. As they stood in the freezing cold, streetcars rattling loudly behind them, their eyes remained fixed on the flickering television screen. Humbard grasped the medium's power. To other people, television is a marvelous invention because it carries big news events, sports, and entertainment, he wrote. To me, television is a gift from God, given to us so that we can use it to obey his great commandment to go forth into all of the world and preach the gospel. That's when Humbard gave birth to televangelism. He soon discovered that getting on television would be no easy task. The Waker accommodated his broadcasts, networks like NBC, CBS, and ABC wanted nothing to do with religious programming for fear of offending their sponsors, who were largely Jewish. Most of the networks had strict policies barring the broadcast of religious services. But Humbard found a loophole. He got Cleveland's WJW to agree to a weekly gospel music show featuring Maud Amy and their children, with Humbard as MC. As long as he didn't do any preaching, the station didn't have a problem. For the first few months, Humbard stuck to protocol until he asked for permission to give a few inspirational talks between songs. The station agreed, but no fire and brimstone. When letters and calls started pouring in from Humbard's audience, management told Humbard to keep talking. WJW soon began to wear Sunday services live from Akron. Humbard also started paying stations as far away as Toronto to wear his telecasts, a mixture of rootsy song, impassioned sermon, and miraculous healing. But with each new station came more expenses. Airtime wasn't cheap, and Humbard was beginning to run out of cash. That was why we started our rallies of television followers, he wrote. To reap the harvest that had been planted by sowing the seeds of faith on TV, Humbard and his wife would ask viewers to make donations to keep them on the air. Without their help, God would disappear from his rightful airwaves. By 1956, Humbard was able to pay his $72,238 annual programming budget from viewer donations. He was also outgrowing the Calvary Temple, where he was preaching five times each Sunday to accommodate the crowds. So Humbard decided to build the world's first megachurch. At the time, evangelicals tended to condemn the sort of opulence embraced by Catholics and other heretics. Not Humbard. He felt called to build God's greatest castle yet. Who should think bigger than God? He wrote. He'd need at least 5,000 seats to accommodate his parish, as well as a room fit for television broadcasts. He wanted a domed, circular structure as a symbol of the world that the televangelism ministry of this church would reach. He would call it the Cathedral of Tomorrow, and he knew exactly how to pay for it. Humbard took to the pulpit, begging feverishly for donations. This is for God's rightful place on earth, he reminded the faithful, who were desperate to ensure their own place in heaven. The cash poured in. Humbard promised that their donations would be the seeds from which greater things would grow, whether that was to be healed from illness or come into great fortune. This seed-based theology is the oldest heresy in the church, says Ole Anthony, founder of the Trinity Foundation, a Christian organization dedicated to exposing religious fraud. The Catholics did it with indulgences. It's based on the scripture that God will give you ten or a hundredfold back on your seed. Rex simply took that idea and said that any investment in his ministry was that seed. He started that. In his autobiography, Humbard recalls Granny Peck, an elderly farmer's wife and longtime follower. He knew that she'd come into some money after selling off the farm. He called to ask for her help. She gave him $25,000. He also began selling bonds to parishioners and investors to build the cathedral. He hired a Chicago architectural firm to draw plans for a $2.5 million church in Cuyahoga Falls that would seat 5,400 and would include a 168-foot stage. But as soon as he broke ground, he met with skepticism from outsiders. Rumors began to swirl that Humbard was using his ministry to enrich himself. 
People complained that his well-tailored suits made him look more like a junior executive than a man of God. They scrutinized his collection of sporty Chevy Bel Airs and his wife's elegant wardrobe. <laughs> well, at that time, when you think about it, in the 1950s, $72,000 was a lot of money. And then to build a, I think it wound up costing him 3 or $4 million to build this monument to himself, basically, that he built. That was that was a big deal back in the 50s. But of course you could see by this report that he was he was doing the uh seed phase thing, copying Oral, Oral Roberts and promising people things and then he he was also doing his begging by saying that they would have to go off the air. That was a big one that a lot of these televangelists used telling people that they would have to go off the air if they didn't get their money. Today, though, today, you don't have to go on television. You could, you could go on YouTube, and it's free. You can go on there for free, and you can have a television program. So a lot of these people might wind up there after even Jim Baker. He might wind up just broadcasting on YouTube if they let him, and uh, then he doesn't have to worry about paying television bills and having strokes. Look, anybody can preach the gospel, and it doesn't have to make you sick to preach the gospel, and you're so stressed out about how you're going to pay your bills because you, you're you you're not really preaching the gospel anymore. You're just building things, building things and building things and doing things that aren't necessary for preaching the gospel. So... It's just like this guy. It, it was successful. He was successful in what he was doing for a while, building and building and building and, and radio stations and television stations and businesses. But he didn't leave behind a, a, uh, a good legacy, I wouldn't say. Here's part three. Newspapers were dumbfounded by his congregation's $100,000 operating budget the largest of any similar church organization in the country, the Beacon claimed. Humbard defended his family's posh dress as a result of having to appear on television. He claimed that a generous supporter lent him the cars at no cost. The year before, he'd filed a tax return claiming just $8,000 in income money that had come through love offerings collected from his congregation. He claimed that he never took a penny from television and radio donations, all went to keeping his ministry on the air. Reporters had no way to verify his claims, as churches are not required to report financial information to the public or the IRS. In 1958, the Cathedral of Tomorrow officially opened its doors, with 60,000 people attending the church's grand opening. It was like nothing they'd ever seen. A 220-foot dome capped the cathedral's sleek granite walls. The main room boasted teardrop chandeliers, thousands of colored lights, and the largest indoor cross in the world. The stage was dressed with bistro-style lighting and a crushed velvet curtain. Other amenities included an elaborate office suite, private prayer rooms, and a nursing home with 200 beds. But Humbard didn't have the money to pay architects or contractors. They sued, scaring off investors, who began to demand early repayment of their bonds. Humbard was also struggling to keep up with the cost of his growing television broadcasts, now aired on over 100 stations nationwide. Banks refused to give him loans, believing religion a bad investment. The Beacon predicted his demise. Then, in 1963, 
Humbard claimed God sent him an angel. Weirdly enough, that messenger looked exactly like Jimmy Hoffa. Despite warnings from colleagues that accepting a loan from Hoffa would come with heaps of bad publicity, Humbard agreed to meet with the infamous Teamsters boss and mafia ally. I'll take a mortgage from anybody, he said to a friend. The two men met at a swank hotel in Chicago a few days later. Meeting Jimmy Hoffa was a memorable experience, Humbard wrote. I have never talked with anybody who has a quicker and more penetrating intelligence, or more easy poise and assurance, than this two-fisted truck driver. By the end of their meeting, Hoffa handed Humbard a $1.2 million loan from the Teamsters Pension Fund. I've watched your programs on television, Hoffa said. I want you to know that I feel this is the finest investment we've ever made. Four years later, Hoffa was convicted of attempting to bribe a juror and was sentenced to 15 years. But his imprisonment didn't deter Humbard, whose loans from the corrupt Teamsters would eventually total $5.5 million. He proudly noted that he never once missed a loan payment, failing to mention that this was due to the generosity of his supporters, who disapproved of dealings with mobsters. Yet Humbard simply invoked the rhetoric of the merciful Christian. Who cares if the bosses were robbing union members of their pensions? Jesus forgives. Nobody can criticize Jimmy Hoffa in my presence, Humbard wrote the year Hoffa disappeared, slain by mafia rivals. I am proud of his friendship with me. By 1968 things were looking up for Humbard. He'd paid off his angry investors and contractors. And thanks to constant capital from the Teamsters Pension Fund, his empire grew bigger. He now appeared each Sunday before an international audience of more than 160 million viewers. Between services at the Cathedral Humbard, traveling the country in a converted Navy bomber that seated 15 and carried 1,000 pounds of camera and sound equipment, drew crowds usually associated with World Series games. Between 1970 and 1974, more than 646,000 people attended Humbard's televised rallies. He and Maud Amy sold their modest home in Cuyahoga Falls and moved into a lavish Akron neighborhood reserved for the city's rubber tycoons such as the Firestones and Cyberlings. Before each sermon, Humbard carefully outlined where contributions were going. Out-of-town appearances were to raise money for television broadcasts. The cathedral congregation paid for the church's mortgage. And a separate love offering collection went to Humbard. He claimed the latter was just enough to pay everyone on the road $2.50 a day for food. I practically own McDonald's, he joked. But there were other investments too. Humbard began scooping up property and businesses. By 1970, his evangelical conglomerate included a large Akron office building, an advertising agency, Mackinac College in Michigan, a plastic and wire company, a New Jersey electric company, and a factory that made girdles. The press frequently questioned his purchases, wondering what a man of God was doing buying non-religious assets with church funds. He defended his investments, claiming that they were for God's earthly empire, not his own. And as if the cathedral wasn't already grand enough, Humbard decided to make it even more spectacular. He built a lavish restaurant called the Cathedral Buffet. He also got federal funding to erect senior housing. Then, in 1972, Humbard had his biggest idea yet. While visiting Canada, he came upon the Calgary Tower in Alberta, standing 626 feet tall and boasting a breathtaking view of the city. A tower like that will be doing some work for God, Humbard wrote. He returned to Akron with plans to build a 750-foot tower replete with a theater of a revolving dining room, and elevators that would carry visitors to the observation deck and closer to God. But as Humbard started pouring the cement, the Securities and Exchange Commission came knocking. They filed suit against Humbard for illegally financing his empire's expansion with $12.5 million unregistered notes and bonds. Since 1952, Humbard had been selling bonds to congregation members and investors without a formal statement of debts, liabilities, or assets. He 
claimed he had no idea that what he was doing was wrong. The folks who had lent us money were not investing in a business venture, he wrote. They were helping us to spread the gospel all over the world. The Fed. Uh, well, if they were helping you spread the gospel all over the world, you don't have to go into millions of dollars worth of debt to do it. Because when God calls you and he gives you some kind of a ministry where you're going to need finances, he'll supply the need. But to go into this massive debt, most of them do this, though. They go into massive debt to build their kingdoms just to make themselves look good. And he was selling these bonds to his congregants and taking money. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> Could you imagine taking money from <laughs> over $5 million from Jimmy Hoffa and from the Teamsters Pension Fund with the, the uh, mafia connections that they had? So a lot of times, being in public ministry myself in in the eighties uh, and the nineties, it was it, it's not easy to raise funds, and so they know it's 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 not easy to raise funds. So they then they know that if they manipulate people and they promise people that they'll get something back in return, then it's easier to get money from uh, from people. So. I always thought, and I didn't know this about Rex Humford, but I always thought somewhere in the back of my mind that a lot of these people were taking money illegally from somebody was giving them money to help them build these massive kingdoms they were building because they weren't getting it honestly. And so when I found this out, when my friend was telling me about this connection with Jimmy Hoffa and taking this money... I wasn't surprised, really. I wasn't surprised, but it goes on a lot more than than we realize. There's people behind the scenes backing these people. And they know how to they know how to get that money. Most of them fall in love with it and they forget about their real aim is preaching the gospel. Because if if your real aim is preaching the gospel, you're going to preach the gospel no matter what, whether you have money or you don't have money. You'll find a way to get the gospel out. Of course, weren't buying. He'd have to repay every penny or they would foreclose on the cathedral. Humbard quickly sold off his assets and used $500,000 of his Teamsters money to cover the repayments. But it still wasn't enough. That's when Humbard pioneered another evangelical breakthrough, begging letters, his greatest money-making scheme yet. Thanks to mass mailings of deceptively personalized letters begging for financial assistance, he could now access money en masse, promising contributors miracles in exchange for checks. In just months, he was able to pay off every last one of his cathedral bonds. It's a gimmick beyond gimmicks, says Ole Anthony. Despite his legal troubles, Humbard's ministry continued to grow at an astounding pace. By the mid-1970s, he could be seen on more than 500 stations worldwide. He spent less and less time in Akron, focusing his attention on newer and more desperate audiences in places like Brazil and Korea. His Akron headquarters became little more than a headquarters for direct mail solicitation, thanks to the Reverend Gene Ewing. Like Humbard, Ewing had gotten his start on the revival circuit. But unlike Humbard, he preferred to remain behind the scenes. In the late 1960s, Ewing helped Oral Roberts save his financially troubled ministry through a letter-writing campaign. 
Whenever Roberts received a letter from a follower, Jung suggested that he ask for payment in exchange for his prayers. It would be an investment in better things to come, Roberts assured his supporters. Within a year, Roberts' income doubled to $12 million. Roberts returned Ewing's favor with a handsome cut. We call him God's ghostwriter, Anthony says. He's this hillbilly with a seventh-grade education who can write these sort of down-homey letters and then earn these preachers millions. Humbard also decided to enlist Ewing. The letters would begin the same way. Sister, insert name. I'm facing a financial lion, they said. Bills are trying to devour this ministry. I now need a miracle for deliverance, but I don't have the money to pay those bills. Letters were often accompanied by gold coins, prayer rugs, or anointing oil that was often just Mazzola. Humbard would urge the recipient to make a cross with the oil on any cash they had handy and send the largest bill to him. In return, Humbard promised that they would be rewarded tenfold for their seed offering. It will be a sacrifice, the letters read. But remember, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the blessing. By 1977, his supporters were sending in an average of $1.2 million a month. Within less than a year, Humbard was able to pay off all his investors. He marked the occasion by burning the last note on television to tell all our critics we didn't go under. Though Ewing was later busted by the feds for more than $400,000 in back taxes and illegally operating as a church, Humbard continued his letter campaign without incident. Soon, Humbard had developed a highly complex system for sending out begging letters. Data processing expert Bill Forsyth set up a mainframe computer that stored donor information. A team of writers and phone operators would then keep the information up to date with each person's prayer needs and notes on previous correspondence. Millions of people were receiving letters as often as twice a week. Humbard collected roughly $40 million a year. They're obscene, Anthony says. He capitalizes on the isolation of the loneliest and poorest members of our society, promising them magical answers to their fears and needs if only they will demonstrate their faith by sending him money. News outlets from the Washington Post to Canada's Globe and Mail dismissed them as little more than tasteless religious fraud. One reporter recounted the story of a lonely 60-year-old woman living in a Toronto low-income housing complex. She lived on a fixed income of $500 a month. Nevertheless, she managed to send off $200 of that to Humbard. If we would have known that, we would have sent it back to her, believe me, Humbard's son, Rex Jr., told the reporter. But there were too many similar stories to make Mildred an anomaly. The elderly sent entire pension checks. Third world families sent their food allowance, hoping that Humbard would cure them of ailments or bless them with fortune. Another reporter told the tale of Arnold Warshiski, who dropped a $50 check in the mail, bound for his synagogue in Alexandria, Virginia. Instead, it mysteriously ended up in Humbard's coffers. Warshiski never received a refund. He did, however, receive plenty of begging letters. By the early 1980s, public opinion had taken a drastic turn for the worse. A cathedral poll showed that 80% of Greater Akron had a negative opinion of the televangelist. His 5,000-plus congregation had been whittled down to hundreds, as he spent most of his time on the road. There wasn't even a choir. Critics and followers alike claimed that his fundraising had done him in. People just got tired of listening to Rex crying for money, one supporter told the Beacon. Even Alma Robinson, a parishioner since the tent revivals in 1952, found a new church. It just wasn't the same without Rex around, she said. Tired of the negative publicity, Humbard moved to Florida, refusing to reveal how much money he was taking with him. He officially resigned as the cathedral's pastor in 1983. The church's board replaced him with several pastors over the years, but each new leader butted heads with a board, which wanted to sell the cathedral against the congregation's wishes. Though Humbard had always insisted that the cathedral belonged to the congregation, the claim turned out to be a hoax. 
His church was little more than a corporation belonging to a board of seven trustees, including Humbard, who was still president. The arrangement. Yeah, this sounds familiar, doesn't this story? Sounds, sounds very familiar, like most of the things that we see today. Yeah, they'll send you a little vial of anointing oil. And uh, and it, it, this story is so true in in many ways because I remember, and probably some of you remember seeing him on TV, and he would actually cry. Oh, he would cry begging, begging for money. Oh, it was disgraceful. But you could see that in the end, it, it, it really cost him his church. And But I, I can imagine, though, at that time, he had already stashed so much money away. And some of these ministries, so-called, they put money in foreign countries and they hide money. So then you don't ever really know what they had. But if he was taking in $40 million a year at one point, he, he had a lot of money. He had a lot of money. And he wanted more. And he wanted <laughs> He wanted more. That's why we don't do any fundraising. Uh, to me, it's if God can't speak to people, then you might as well hang it up. That's how I feel. Uh, you might as well hang it up if you're if you can't trust God to fund your work in in uh, in many ways. He can fund your work. So if if God can't fund your work, then you're in the wrong business. If you can't learn how to trust God to meet your needs, whatever it is, if you have to resort to these kind of tactics, you lose out with God in the end. You lose out with you lose your relationship with Jesus, and you lose your credibility and your integrity to uh, with the. So what good is it? We've we've got enough of this going on to do such a reproach to the gospel. Of course, there's many wonderful people out there that love God and and preach the gospel out of a pure heart. But it's usually the ones like these types that are seen the most by the public. So we're hoping to reform that. We're hoping, my hope is that we can help people to change their mind about giving, that giving really isn't about you. It's about helping someone else because it is more blessed to give than to receive. God doesn't require money. He doesn't need money. He doesn't require money. What's he going to do? How how do you get it up there? It's just ridiculous, really, when you think about it. It's not giving is about helping somebody else, and that's the purpose of giving. But as far as God is concerned, he doesn't ask for money to do anything you just have to pray and ask ask and you shall receive and everything you need from the lord is free it's free for the asking (laughs) i don't know why people want to make it so difficult and they get into uh, such a desperate state that they'll do anything to get out of the uh, financial mess they're in usually or or uh, if they have a messed up child or they need a healing or whatever they they get so desperate that they and they it seems like god's not answering your prayers so what do they do then they start sending off this money to these people that could care less about you they don't they don't really care about you they could care less about you 
the thing that they care about, if they're willing to sell Jesus, then if they don't keep the them and the one that they claim to love, then how could they care about you? They don't. Here's the last audio. Dated back to April Fool's Day, 1977, Humbard quietly incorporated the church as part of the newly founded Rex Humbard Foundation, naming his board of trustees as the only actual church members. He also included a clause that paid for legal insurance to indemnify board members from lawsuits. Some claimed it was simply a ploy to avoid paying creditors, according to a lawsuit filed by Pullman Power Products, which still hadn't been paid for building the cathedral. The church was eventually sold to Ernest Angley Ministries in 1989. No one knows where the money went, though Humbard's supporters, who'd long paid his debts, never received a penny. To this day, Rex Humbard Ministries still collects donations. Fortunately for Humbard, the spotlight would soon be hogged by sexier televangelist scandals, Jim Backer and his massive swindle involving a Christian resort, Jimmy Swaggart and his dalliances with hookers. Humbard had essentially created his own cover. His techniques had given birth to an even bolder generation of TV preachers, from Pat Robertson to Jerry Falwell, who would take Humbard's principles to more profitable heights. No longer did they need to rely on national networks, they started their own. Paul Crouch started the Trinity Broadcasting Network, while Robertson developed the Christian Broadcast Network and Backer formed PTL. They made religious television available 24 hours a day, with flashy graphics and programs that appealed to a younger audience. Suddenly, raising $1.2 million a month was for babies. TBN's monthly fundraising drives brought in well over $90 million. Even their scandals were bigger and bolder. In 1988, the IRS investigated 24 televangelists, hoping to strip them of their tax-exempt status on the reasonable suspicion that the money was going to the preachers instead of missionary work. Backer, a close friend of Humbard, proved the most egregious thief. When the IRS audited PTL, agents discovered that Backer was not only paying himself $1.6 million a year, he was also using part of the company's $129 million revenue to pay off his mistress, Jessica Hahn hoping to keep her quiet about their drug-fueled sexual rendezvous. Months later, Jimmy Swaggart, who publicly condemned Backer for his adultery, was busted for courting prostitutes in his spare time. Scamming old people was one thing, sex was another. Religious television's ratings took a beating. Humbard managed to go unscathed. His indiscretions seemed to pale in comparison to the new electronic preachers. At least he stole with taste. Rex, even he was much more gentlemanly than most of these guys are, Anthony says. He had some sense of decorum. Today, the Cathedral of Tomorrow, now Ernest Angley's Cathedral, flashes on the corner of State Road, its white exterior coated with decades of soot. It's now more an ironic tourist destination than a revered house of worship. Across from the parking lot, usually empty save for a few rusted-out Fords, sit the sad remnants of Humbard's uncompleted tower, 1,400-seat room for Angley's faith healing service. The interior looks like a 70s rec room. The crowd's ashy complexions and constant choir of coughs make it clear that this is a final and desperate option for many. After a bit of singing accompanied by the synthetic pulse of an electric piano, Angley invites the crowd to the altar, where he promises to end their pain. He's a cartoonish specimen, his munchkin face slathered with makeup, his toupee resembling an expired woodland creature. The seams of his corset show through his polyester suit, as his cologne wafts through the room like bad incense. For the line of sick and sorrowful, this man is their last hope. He receives them on stage, allowing some to tell their sad stories, from terminal cancer and sciatic pain to drug and alcohol abuse. One by one, Angley grabs their foreheads, mumbles something under his breath, and then screams what sounds like Bebe. Worshippers pass out into the arms of his bodyguards, 
cloths placed over their incurable heads. Many of them will return the following week when their pain does not disappear. At first glance, this poorly attended magic show seems to be all that's left of Humbard's great 20th century legacy. But across town, in an industrial park in Bath, one can find his truest influence still flourishing. There are no crosses or pulpits to be found there. It's just a call center where cubicle rats on headphones harass millions of dollars from American households for Christian ministries, Republican campaigns, and blue-chip corporations. This is Infocision Headquarters, the world's second-largest telemarketing firm. The company recently made headlines for donating $21 million to the construction of Akron University's new football stadium. But few people know the true story of Infocision's birth. It's Humbard's last great work. In 1982, Gary Taylor, the cathedral's marketing director, founded Infocision. His first client was Rex Humbard, for whom Taylor managed every aspect of his telefund raising. And in 1985, even as Humbard's ministry was collapsing, Infocision earned more than $1.5 million, only to double its sales a year later. Now Infocision boasts 32 call centers and more than 4,000 employees. Last year, the company generated $154 million in sales, mostly through religious organizations. Even after the Do Not Call Registry was enacted, Infocision prospered, opening 10 new call centers within a year, thanks to a loophole that exempts ministries. It's an absolute racket, says James Randi, an expert on trickery in the faith healing trade. Someone in the government should come out against this, but they won't. That's political suicide. Anyone who comes out against religion is politically doomed. And these guys feed off that fact. It's the kind of political protection that mortgage and oil companies wish they could buy, yet the business of God carries far more clout. Whether he appreciates that. <laughs> yeah, the business of God. But it's not really God, it's a business. But it's not really God's business. That's not the way Jesus operated his ministry at all, or the, the apostles. But we'll talk about uh, Ernest Angley in another program. There is one interesting fact, though, that I'll mention about Ernest Angley is that he owned a 747. Now, that's a pretty big plane to own. That's a huge plane. And uh, that was his ministry plane. There's some videos of it up on uh, YouTube that you can see. For yourself, that was in the news where the plane had landed wrong and it blew out tires. And uh, when people were getting off the plane when it landed, it all, there was only five people on the 747. So I don't know where they were coming from. There's five people on this huge plane. But that's how much money that Ernest Angley was taking in. And I asked my friend, I said, well, what happened to his plane? And uh, he said that it, it, they had they it's in a junkyard now because they only last for so long. So imagine you spend all this money on a plane and then it winds up in a junk heap. <laughs> but I I, th I think he's ninety seven or ninety eight or whatever. He's really old now, this Ernest Angley. So I don't think he's going anywhere. I don't think he's taking any more trips, but. Anyway, the Hobbards now are both gone. His wife, Maud Amy, and she she was a singer, and uh, they passed away. You'll see, if you're looking at my show page, I have pictures on there. 
of them and of their cathedral and of their tower and um, there's a there was also a picture of their uh, tombstone which it, it's quite it's elaborate but it's it's not as elaborate as Amy Simple and she had a very elaborate tombstone but the uh, Humbard family plot that they have in the cemetery. But you don't hear anything. You don't hear anything more about uh, the Humbards. That they passed away, and the, basically that was the end of their their ministry. Of course, they're still, like I said, they they still have a website, and they had a Facebook page, but it's not updated. And uh, I don't know what kind of work they do with their foundation. Who knows? But anyway, it's a legacy to leave behind. Is to uh, leave behind basically uh, a ministry that fell apart in the end all those years that you were building and building and building and uh, then he he wasn't even on television anymore I think I don't remember exactly when he went off the air but he wasn't on anymore for the longest so that's what happens. You can work all your life to uh, build a ministry, and then in the end, the whole thing just falls apart, and people don't even really remember you. I, I, I didn't even, I haven't even thought of Rex Humbard for so many years. And this friend of mine brought it up, the story that uh, he found about them taking this money from the mafia, and I thought, well, that's an interesting life story to look into so there's a lot more information really on the Humbards I wish I had some of those television programs of his there there might be some out there I searched and searched for some most of the things that are out there have already been cleaned up so they took all the begging stuff out of them and now it's just uh, PR for the Humbard family but I wanted to also mention this um that Paula White was at the White House the other day. They had the National Day of Prayer. Of course, you know, when you pray. When you pray. we The reason we pray is because we're, at, we're petitioning God for our request, and we're asking God to intervene. So Paula gets up there, and, and I noticed that one of the headlines in one of the newspapers were uh, scam evangelists, evangelist rants ranting incoherent prayer which most of it was because I guess she's so excited to be over there in the White House and then she's decreeing and declaring and then she's prophesying oh don't I, I have I have a message for President Trump in case he's listening don't take counsel from Jezebel don't take counsel from Jezebel you get you you get into trouble taking counsel from Jezebel, and in the end, after the prayer, he thanked her. Oh, and I thought to myself, like he, he can't really be taking it ser- He can't really be taking it seriously. But it, it seems like he 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 was. <laughs> it seems like he was. But Paula, when she prays, she's not really praying. She just decreeing and declaring. Here's one of her rants. 
and send prosperity now. For Deuteronomy 28.8 says, Command your blessing upon this land. You said in Deuteronomy 8.9 to bring us into a good land without lack. For your word declares in Psalm 33.2, Blessed is the nation whose God is Lord. So I declare to you right now to be Lord over this nation, over the United States of America, and we receive blessing over any plague, over any economic distress. You will stay the hand of the enemy according to Second Samuel chapter 21, verse 16. Notice, Paula White is declaring Jesus Lord over this land. Can you, can you imagine? Can you imagine that? She is declaring Jesus is Lord over this land. I, Paula, I have news for you. Paula. Jesus Christ is Lord the whole world. So just because you're decreeing and declaring it doesn't make it so. I don't know. What Bible are you reading? I think you need to go back to Bible college. Here's another one. This was in front of a national audience, by the way. What an honor to be here with you, President and First Lady, Vice President, Second Lady. It's a beautiful day to lift up our Lord and Savior. He is a certain God in uncertain times, and the Bible says if two or three of us agree as touching anything, it will be done. Job 22, verse 28 says, if you decree a thing and declare a thing, it will be established. So, God, we in agreement with your word and with your name, the name of Jesus. Psalm 40, verse 17 says, you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O God. I declare no more delays to the deliverance of COVID-19. No more delays to healing and a vaccination. No more delays to restoration of this great nation, the United States of America. For Psalm 71, 2 says, In your righteousness, deliver us and rescue us. Incline your ear and... She, she, dec- she declares an end to the coronavirus. She, she, I wonder where she was when it started. Because if she was decreeing and declaring... During the start of this thing, then there, w- I guess there shouldn't be any coronavirus. But I-, I have news for you, Paula. You have no authority over these kind of things. And if you did, then you could stop it in its tracks. But since you prayed that prayer on Thursday, there have been more cases of this dastardly plague. So you have no authority to stop the coronavirus. It's ridiculous. This is, this is in the Rose Garden of the of the White House in front of the national audience with the President of the United States standing there. Notice she calls her President instead of Mr. President, which is the proper title. Not President. What are you talking about? I think she needs more etiquette classes. Here's channel. Here's a, the third rant. And in conclusion, I declare Isaiah chapter 43, verse 19. I ask the Lord to do a new thing in our nation by giving waters in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Malachi 4.2 says, Jesus, arise over the nation with healing in your wings. 
President, one last word. Like David, who had had victory after victory after victory after victory, would face his biggest battle. It was called Ziglag. And they would take his wives and his children, and the city would be burned down. And he cried and he wept, and he began to pray out to God, and God gave him a word. And through fasting and praying, I believe this is a word for you and for this nation. The Lord spoke to him and said, Pursue and go after them, and you shall without fail recover all. Sir, the word of the Lord, I believe, for this nation and for this administration is you will recover. She's, she's prophesying that he will recover all. Don't take counsel from Jezebel. Just remember what happened. Remember what happened in the Bible. She was fasting and praying. No, she does not hear from God, this woman. She doesn't even know God. The God that she knows is the God that has his hand out for donations. That's the God that she knows. She doesn't even know God. So it's hard to believe. The whole thing, when I look at it, I can't believe it's actually happening when I see this woman there with the President of the United States. I, I just can't even believe it. But we're in the end times and expect to see anything. But it always puts me in, in the mind of this, that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, and he will, the man of sin, he'll be charismatic, he'll be well-dressed, he'll be handsome, he'll be rich, he'll be uh, a man of fair speech, and and he'll be able to persuade. And he'll say to Many people, come on my radio program, come on my television program, and let's pray. And people will fall for it. They'll fall for it because they're not reading their Bibles. They're not saying to themselves, is this, is this really a man of God or is this really a woman of God? What, what's their doctrine? What do they believe? What gospel are they preaching? What Jesus are they talking about? That's how people are going to follow the Antichrist because he'll he'll talk about God, yeah, and he'll talk he'll talk about Jesus, yeah, he'll talk about Jesus. But we have to be aware of what Jesus are these people talking about? Is it the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Is it that Jesus, or is it the Jesus that they make up for their own personal gain? And then somehow these people are pushed out into the public. I guess the devil, it has to be the devil that gives them this kind of power and notoriety and pushes them out. Like, we're supposed to accept these people. No, no, we don't accept these we don't accept that gospel that they're peddling. No, we don't accept that. We're not going to be deceived. No, we're not going to be deceived when the time comes. When maybe there won't be any, any more radio broadcast and there won't be any more Christians on YouTube. Or That day could happen when, they, when uh, we won't be allowed to broadcast anywhere. Well, we'll still be able to preach the gospel because we could still witness to people one-on-one. That's always the best anyway. If more people would minister one-on-one, we wouldn't 
people wouldn't fall for these scammers that are out there telling people that they need millions of dollars to do their so-called ministries. But also, uh, I was telling you about the feeding programs and the the top, I, I had looked at the top charitable organizations that people were searching for, and the top organization was Feeding America. And of course, Feeding America is the organization that provides donated food to many of the churches and the ministries, and then the, the churches and ministries become distribution centers. They're not buying the food. A lot of them use it as a fundraiser to tell you and to make you think that they're buying the food. But before you make a donation to a to a uh, church feeding program, ask them. And you have the right to ask them, how much of this money actually goes for buying food? And is the food that you're getting donated? And are you paying the people to unload the trucks? And are you paying people to uh, distribute the food? Who gets paid here? Find out. Because I can guarantee you, a lot of these people boast about feeding programs, and they're not feeding anybody. They're just handing out food that's been donated to them by the tens of thousands of dollars that's being donated. And and uh, the first time I became aware of this was when my friend was telling me about going to unload trucks in New York, and I asked him. I said, "Well, how do you how did?" How does the church get the food? And he said, well, it's donated food. They, This organization brings the food that's donated, and we distribute it. So that's when the light bulb went off in my head, and I'm thinking, I see all these ministries saying that we have feeding programs, and we're feeding people, and we need money, and we ask for your contributions to help us. So the majority of them aren't buying any food. They're not feeding anybody. They're just handing out food. They should tell you that. They should tell you that. We're not, uh, we don't spend any money on this food. It's donated and we're we're a distribution center only. And if they need donations for whatever else they need to pay their staff or whatever, they can be honest with the people and tell them the truth. But don't make it look like you're feeding the poor when you're not feeding the poor. You're feeding them food that you got for free, please. But anyway, that's Feeding America. And they they take in millions upon millions upon millions of uh, dollars in donations they they do have i have to say though they do have a good operation as far as they ha- are uh, nationwide and nobody should go hungry in this country because there's plenty of food they're throwing food away but these food banks give away tens of thousands of pounds worth of food every week and uh so nobody should be hungry nobody should be hungry But always ask the question when you see these uh, people. Most of these people, they have to have some kind of a gimmick to do fundraising. So they have to get you to open up your wallet. So they have to make make it look like we're doing all these great things around the world. And they're not really doing it on their money. 
They're, <laughs> they're not really uh, taking money from their pocket or from their ministry to uh, buy these supplies to feed the hungry. Oh. <laughs> the whole thing, there's so many uh things going on, so many scams going on out there, and it's pitiful, really. I don't understand why people can't just be honest about what they're doing and tell people the truth. So what's wrong with the truth? Nothing. Nothing's wrong with the truth. And God will bless you. Isn't it more important to be right with God and to do things that are right in the sight of God instead of doing things your own way? And building these kingdoms because I don't, I don't care who it is, I mean, even President Trump, out of everything that he did and he accomplished in his years as president, and to see it all falling apart, it's all falling. It was all it's all falling apart, and so it's not in his control. It's in no man's control. I don't care who it is. So. A lot of these people will spend their life building buildings and building wealth. And in the end, what good is it going to do them when they lose it all or whatever happens to them when they wind up on the gospel junk heap? And a lot of them do, which is a real tragedy because what is more important in your life than to have a personal relationship with the God of the universe? And also a God that that loves you, a God that died for you, a God that came down to earth and walked the earth and died on a cross, a painful death for your sins. And yes, sin, you you have to repent of your sins and, and be born again. You have to admit you're a sinner. You can't just say, well, I don't make, I don't sin, I don't. I don't really do anything to hurt anybody. That's not true. Everybody sins. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Bible says. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, ask him to come into your life. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Come to him with a repentant heart. Jesus said in the third chapter of John that you must be born again. First, you're born of your mother. And then you must be born again of the Spirit of God. And Romans 10 says that confession is made with the mouth unto salvation. We have to confess Jesus Christ as the Lord and ask him to be the Lord of our lives. And he'll change your life. He really will. I'm telling you, you you will be so happy (laughs) because the scales will fall off your eyes and you'll see, all of a sudden you'll see. And you'll know God and you won't have to search anymore because you'll find peace, the Prince of Peace, and you'll find joy unspeakable. So that's our program for today. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. God bless you all. Thanks, everybody that tunes in from all over the world, our friends in England and Canada and Germany, South Africa, Singapore, Russia, many countries of the world, the people that are tuning in.
And I appreciate you stopping by and for letting us spend this time together. We need each other in these times. So stay strong, everybody, okay? I think about you, and I, I hope you all are doing all right. And pray God strengthens you through this difficult time. And be blessed, okay? Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.